Good evening, and welcome to the Perpetual Notion Machine right here on WORT 89.9 FM, community-supported radio in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm your host, Katherine Garvins. On tonight's show, we'll listen to my interview with Nick Bailey, Director of Migration Ecology with SELVA. Nick and his team study bird migration in the neotropical region of Central and South America. I first asked him to tell me a bit about SELVA and the research that he's conducting. Selva is a not-for-profit Colombian organization um, whose mission is primarily to undertake research for conservation. Um, so we focus on carrying out applied research that will have conservation applications. Um, and our, probably the, the strongest program um, that the organization has is the, the Migration Ecology Program um, that has been working now since 2009. Mm-hmm. Um, to understand the needs of long-distance migratory birds, primarily land birds, um, in Colombia, but also elsewhere in the neotropical region. Um, so we have now been working across, I think, well, up to eight different countries. So mm. we've worked in Ecuador, Colombia, Panama, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Honduras, and Guatemala. Okay. And... Since 2016, we initiated under the under our migratory ecology program um, a project called the Neotropical Flyways Project, mm-hmm. and this initiative is aimed at trying to understand, firstly, how birds migrate, and secondly, how we can make sure that their needs during migration are met in a changing world. Mm-hmm. And this really stemmed from the fact that a a variety of different studies have identified migration as a large (laughs) owl species come up and (laughs) said hello. Um, I'll I'll start that bit again. Okay. (laughs) So, yeah, the the need to understand how birds are migrating and, and what they need to be able to complete those migrations comes from the fact that there are now a large number of studies that show that migration is the most vulnerable part of the annual life cycle in these birds. Mm. And that actually translates into much higher rates of mortality during the migration periods. So it kind of follows logically that, you know, if we want to reverse the declines we see in many long distance migratory birds, it's necessary to understand what's happening during migration, what the needs of these birds are, and you know, one step further is understand why and where do birds die on migration. Mm. Um, so you know, this project really was born out of that and the fact that of all the stages of the, the life cycle of these birds, migration is surprisingly the least studied mm. um, relative to say the breeding periods or the wintering periods. Um, and that's particularly true in the neotropics. So, you know, in North America, in Canada and the United States, there is a pretty healthy body of research on migration, where birds stop to attain the fuel to continue migrating, um, where there's kind of sites described as fire escapes, which are areas that birds use in emergencies to kind of rest and recover. Um, but that is not true for the neotropical region. So, you know, when we began working on this back in 2009, you could count the number of publications um, 
looking at you know what how how birds are migrating through this region or, or where they're stopping on one hand i mean it's literally you know there were very very few studies so it was a huge black hole in our knowledge um, that we have been trying to fill and so the neotropical flyways project was really aimed at, at kind of accelerating this process um, so there was kind of a it's been a gradual increase in studies over the years in the region but there was still an awful lot of information missing and there was no kind of systematic approach as to how we can produce that information at the scale that we need to because you know we're talking pretty big region I and mean, it's yeah <laughs> multiple countries spanning thousands of kilometers um and so you know that's that's where the neotropical flyways project came from trying to fill that black hole trying to generate this key information to understand how birds migrate through the region what habitats they're using mm -hmm. where they're actually and this is you know, one of the most important aspects of the project is understanding where they attain the fuel to keep migrating. So mm -hmm. to fly thousands of kilometers, just like a car needs to, you know, if it's going to drive thousands of miles, you need fuel, you need gasoline, and it's just the same with the birds. They need something and they stop and they make strategic stops to gain the fuel for those flights. And those sites are particularly critical and they're the ones that we know least about. So. So that's kind of where all of this started and and during that process since 2016 through the neotropical flyways project um we have started partnering with wisconsin department of conservation um to help yeah, fill these gaps for, for both birds from wisconsin but also elsewhere um across north i'm assuming that you also work with other departments of natural resources in, in the U.S., is that the case, or do you have select ones that you primarily work with? So under this project, the Neotropical Flyways Project, so far the, the states that have contributed is Wisconsin and Missouri. Oh, okay. So not as uh, many as I might uh, think. Okay. No, yeah. not as many as you, as you might hmm. think. And hmm. I mean, other projects we're working on, we, we've partnered with Tennessee, with West Virginia, but yeah, on this project so far, they're, they're the only two states who have, who have contributed. So can you talk a little bit about these stopover sites? I mean, I understand that, at least I think from what I've read, that these, what you call a stopover site versus a fire escape, are these places where there's enough um, foraging materials for the animals to put on in a significant amount of weight for the next leg of their migration. So can you talk about those spots a little bit? Or correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> No, you're exactly right. Okay. That that's kind of the, the the difference between. I mean, there's a number of different classifications for the sites that birds use on migration. As we've already mentioned, there's one term to fire escape, which is generally used in emergency when birds encounter poor weather conditions. Mm -hmm. They're often in coastal areas where birds will drop in, having uh, made over overwater flights. Um, and then you have other sites that are essentially just used to rest during the day between successive nocturnal flights. So birds, most migratory land birds, so things like warblers, thrushes, tanagers, they all migrate by night. By night. So during a, a, a bout of migration, they won't necessarily migrate constantly during two or three days. They will migrate at night, stop during the day, fly the next night, and so on. And so really those sites that they're using during the day 
they don't have much more of a function above and beyond just resting. Mm. Um, so they're not necessarily providing the fuel they need to carry on flying. And then, the, so the final site is set or term that we use is, is stopover sites. Um, and as you said, these are the sites that are critical in terms of providing the food resources they need to lay down what are generally mostly fat reserves, but they also will store some of the fuel in, in, term, in as protein um, for subsequent flights. And these sites are very different from, say, a fire escape or a roost re rest stop is, is the term for the second site I mm -hmm. talked about, because they'll be used for multiple days. Um, the others will typically be used for one or two days until the birds then continue on their way. And so, and so this really makes them very different because birds actually spend more time at these stopover sites than they do flying during migration. So mm. typically somewhere between around 70, 80% of the time spent migrating is actually spent at stopover sites, accumulating these energy reserves they need to fly. And, and any one stopover site, sometimes they might be used for three or four days, but quite often the really critical ones are actually used for a couple of weeks. Um, and what you see is birds lay down enormous fat reserves. When you actually think about it in terms of their, their normal body mass, it's phenomenal. I mean, it's, it's equivalent to say myself, who I weigh approximately 80 kilograms, basically in the space of a couple of weeks, just gorging on food, going from 80 kilograms up to around somewhere around 120, 130, mm. which, you know, in human terms is almost physically impossible. But birds do this on a regular basis and does it, it's, it's really incredible. So literally, I mean, these sites, they tend to be obviously strategically located in a point in the migration where, where the birds are going to pass, but often they are prior to areas that won't necessarily provide much food. So particularly when we think about the migration route of many birds from North America, they're crossing the Gulf of Mexico, they're, cro they're crossing the Caribbean Sea. And obviously, when they're over water, they can't feed. So often these stopover sites are located prior to these kind of barriers. Um, and that's why birds will lay down so much uh, energy reserves at these sites, because they need that energy to overfly these barriers often, you know, several thousand kilometers or thousand five hundred miles approximately to, to fly over these barriers. And that requires large fat reserves. Mm -hmm. So how long does it take them to fly these say from, I don't know, I know that it's, there's a flight pattern that goes through Central America, right? So like when they leave yeah. the, the coast of the U.S. to when they arrive in Colombia, for example, or is it the Santa Marta Mountains? Santa that, Marta yep, Mountains, yeah. yeah. So I think the, to make the jump from the Gulf Coast to say the tip of the Yucatan Peninsula, I mm -hmm. think it's somewhere in the region of 14 to 16 hours okay. it takes them. So they're, you know, most of these birds will be flying at an average of 40 to 60 kilometers per hour approximately. Mm. But wow. there are species that make these much bigger jumps um, and they can actually be flying nonstop for three days. Um, not because they want to fly nonstop for three days, but because there aren't opportunities to, to put down. <laughs> right. So when you think about species like the Blackpool Warbler or the Connecticut Warbler that you mentioned mm. earlier, they will take off from these and seaboard say somewhere between washington and new york roughly you know that kind of areas is, is a major takeoff point and it's now been shown that some of those individuals will fly direct from that that part of the of the of the atlantic coast direct to colombia or venezuela wow. and that flight we're talking somewhere in the region of 60 to 70 hours 
Um, so it's pretty much three days, complete, nonstop, just going for it um, mm -hmm. over the open ocean. Occasionally, wow. they will pitch down on a Caribbean island if they happen to see one. But obviously, it's possible to, to fly that whole stretch without actually seeing land. So quite often, they're prepared um, when they take off to actually make that flight direct because mm -hmm. there's no guarantee they will happen to come across, say, Puerto Rico and on, on their route. You said earlier that, that they migrate primarily by night. But when you say three days, I mean, that's 24 hours of flight, right? Are they flying during the day then in that scenario? Exactly. Okay. <laughs> so when there are no opportunities to land, birds will continue flying through the daylight hours. Sure. But in general, if they are over land, most birds that are nocturnal migrants that fly by night will actually stop during the day. And that's even if they are in very inhospitable in, in areas. Mm -hmm. So changing systems a little bit. If you look at the, the system between Europe and Africa, um, there, as opposed to facing the Caribbean Sea or the Gulf of Mexico, birds have to cross the Sahara Desert. And the evidence to date shows that while some birds will fly nonstop, so they will fly during the day as well, the majority actually will just drop down into the desert during the day, sit, up, sit under a rock or whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever limited vegetation they might find, wait out the heat of the day and then start again flying the next night. Um, so yeah, generally over land, they will make these stops, but if they are over water, they really don't have the option and they'll just keep going. Wow. Are you still fascinated by this? Do you ever become not fascinated by, by this process? Not yet. <laughs> Good. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a little over 25 years wow. that I've, since I, I mean, I've, been watching birds since I was, yeah. I was six years old. But let's say starting from when I began my PhD, which was kind of the initiation, let's say, of my complete obsession and my academic career <laughs> with, with migratory birds, I continue to be surprised. Yeah, wow. every migration, there's, it, it's constantly changing and, and birds never cease to, to do things that are just Amazing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about what a typical day looks for you or you and your team. What What's the science on the ground that you're doing right now? So we're, we're doing using two methods kind of as the primary means of, of obtaining the information that we're trying to get hold of. And one of them is, is the most simple and, and oldest of all the techniques, which is just go out with some binoculars and count birds, basically. Um, obviously, we do it in a more standardized way. So the core of, of this, of the Neotropicals Flyways project is carrying out what we call transects. These are just simply a hundred meter long route marked with flagging tape either end. And simply we just walk that route during 10 minutes and count all the migratory birds we see. Mm. Um, but the key to, to be able to make this information useful is that we have multiple sites across the region we're studying and trying to cover as much of the variation that you find in the habitat types, in rainfall gradients, which is incredibly important in the tropics in terms of determining um, the type of vegetation you encounter and elevation as well. So birds will use mountains in different ways. Some species are very much tied to mountain habitats, so say montane forests or cloud forests. Um, and others are more lowland species. So 
that is kind of the bread and butter of what we do. So when we start working in a given country, let's use the example of Honduras, because we've literally just finished a field season there. Um, we had, I think in the end, it was 10 different sites spread across the country. And in each of those sites, there are eight to 16 individual transects laid out in the landscape, trying to cover as much of the variation. And then the observers will go out and they will just count the birds, uh, the migratory birds they observe in each of those transects. And we're actually uploading that data directly to eBird, which is uh, an online platform for bird observations, which has is, which is, um, become very popular, popular worldwide. Um, but what we do with that information afterwards is use it to run what are called occupancy models, a specific type of model that basically relates the conditions in each one of those transects in terms of the habitat type and the environmental conditions in terms of the amount of rainfall that area receives each year to the presence of birds. And you can then use that to predict where you would expect a given species to occur in a landscape based on on those correlations. So it's it's a it's a fairly powerful way of starting to map and understand that which areas any given species is using during during its migration at the country level but also at a regional level. So we can run these models for say five countries at a time and start to understand where the birds are. So that's kind of the the first piece which gives us the where and the when. But the other methodology we use, and, and this is much more intensive, let's say, is, as I mentioned earlier, there's these different types of sites that birds, or different ways that birds are using these different sites. Mm -hmm. So the next step is, okay, we may say, oh, there's a mm -hmm. interesting concentration of ceruleum warblers here, but what are they doing there? Are they just stopping to rest between successive flights, or is this an area where they're accumulating fuel, and if it's, if if that's the case, obviously it's much more important for them in terms of determining the, the success of, of migration. So at those sites, what we do is we, we carry out captures of birds using mist nets, and we run those mist nets every single day in the hope that we will recapture one or two individuals. Why do we want to recapture them? Because we want to understand, firstly, whether they're spending more than one day there. So if we catch 50 birds and we don't recatch a single one, then that tends to suggest that no, they just, each bird stop there for a day and that site doesn't have much more of a function apart from just being a rest stop. Um, but if we recatch them, then we can say, okay, well, they, they spent more than a day here. It's, this probably suggests they might be using to fuel. But the key thing is each time we're catching these birds, we're weighing. So we have their body mass. And as a bird accumulates energy reserves, just like us, if we lay down fat during a, a, a bingy Christmas, um, our weight goes up, right? <laughs> and it's the same with the birds. As they lay down these energy reserves, you see their body mass increasing. Um, so those recaptures are critical because we can actually understand not only if they are laying down energy reserves by seeing whether there's an increase in, in body mass, you can actually see these deposits of fat that they store on their mm. body. Um, but we can also understand how quickly. And that is very much tied to the relative quality of one habitat compared to another. So at some sites we work in different habitats, say forest and shade grown coffee and whatever's in the landscape. And you will find these differences in the rate at which birds can actually lay down entry reserves. Mm -hmm. And that starts to become really critical information when you want to say, 
okay, this is a, an area, a region where birds are stopping over, but which habitat are we going to prioritize for conservation? Do we need more shade coffee? Do we need more forest? Do we need more? And so, you know, understanding if there are differences in the rate at which birds lay down energy hmm. is really key to being able to say, this is what the birds need. Mm -hmm. or this is really finding those resources. Um, so yeah, those when we're mist netting, we, we generally work from, from dawn till roughly 11 in the morning. Mm -hmm. um, after that, it starts to get too hot um, and the birds go to sleep and so do we. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and so you're just running a set of mist nets, walking round and round and, and taking the birds out mm -hmm. um, on, a, on a half an hour basis, um, taking them back to a station, banding them, putting a unique metal band on their legs, um, and then taking this series of, of data, which includes obviously species, age, sex, uh, wing length to give an idea of size, and then body mass. And we actually code the the fat, the visible fat stores and their muscle, because they actually, mm -hmm. birds will build up their, their flight muscle prior to flights, partly to sustain that increase in body mass, but also because that same extra protein stored in that muscle will be used as fuel as well mm -hmm. during, during the migratory flights. Do you have, I mean, you mentioned Honduras, for example, do you have multiple research teams across these different regions or do you, does your team have to do some travel and try to cover different so areas? We, we have a kind of a core team who are primarily from Colombia, but also from Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. And they will train and accompany researchers in each area we work. Okay. So one of the key aims of this project above and beyond producing quality scientific, scientific information is to build local capacity. Basically, because for us, it's incredibly obvious or clear that if there aren't individuals in each of these areas where we're discovering these new sites who are obs as obsessed by migratory birds as we are, we're not gonna see any change. Yeah. So we, you know, partly it's build building that local capacity for research, but also it's kind of building a constituency for, for conservation action in the future. Mm -hmm. um, that as a strategy has is, is actually worked really well under the project. So in Colombia, we, we took on a whole load of, of researchers that we hadn't worked with previously in, in different regions along the Caribbean coast of Colombia. And now several of them are actually leading conservation projects locally in their areas and kind of implementing what we've found. And the same happened in Costa Rica. And so you know, it's a model we really believe in, in investing in people as close to the areas as we're working as possible, because they're the ones who are going to look after in the future. Because, yeah, literally, we obviously, the, you know, the, the project directors and the main people involved, we simply can't be everywhere at the same time. So right. we need to multiply our efforts. And, and that's one of the key mechanisms of doing it is, is working with these local teams in each country. You know, sometimes we're working in national parks, sometimes we're working in private reserves, and sometimes we are just working, you know, on somebody's farm. So having those local contacts who know who to talk to makes a big difference. And, and those relationships tend to last in time as well. Right. So I think that's, you know, something else that's been been really satisfying from the project is that, you know, we initiate these relationships primarily with the goal of, of getting the surveys done, but inevitably it generates a relationship between the local observers and these landowners. And they the landowners become interested in and it's just, you know, it's kind of a snowboarding effect where mm -hmm. where everybody starts to kind of work for the for the for the migratory birds. Sure. 
Just in general, if you can speak to how the work that you're conducting is impacting the health of Wisconsin's migratory birds. Obviously, many species that breed in Wisconsin migrate directly through the region where we're working. Mm -hmm. Um, So not only are we generating information about the needs of those populations, um, but as I've already mentioned, some of the work we've been doing is already translating into direct actions on the ground. So in the case of of two of the stopover areas that we have identified in Colombia, there are ongoing habitat restoration or habitat enrichment efforts where we have established native tree nurseries um, and have now planted close to 40,000 trees Mm. between between the two of them in Colombia. And it's really important to mention that, you know, those trees weren't, the species we're planting weren't picked at random. Um, Part of the, one of the other methodologies we employ in the project is to carry out foraging observations of birds on specific trees Mm -hmm. um, to understand which trees provide more resources um, relative to, to other species for the birds. And so I like to use the word habitat enrichment rather than restoration, because we're really trying to create essentially food banks Mm -hmm. for migratory birds. Um, These are often in in landscapes that have been heavily modified. Um, A lot of the original cover has been been chopped down. So so we're not really trying to recreate forests because often you're working, we're in working landscapes where the farmers trying to make a livelihood and you can't just say oh we, you know we need to reforest all this area so what we're doing is trying to really enrich whatever vegetation there is with with these species mm-hmm. um, and the same goes for for the area we're working in costa rica um, with our partners uh, project proyecto cerulia or, or cerulean project mm. um, in costa rica where they have identified a corridor that's called the corridor azul as all being blue in Spanish and obviously referring to the color of the Cerulean warbler. And a very similar effort where um, they are also, they've established a, a native tree nursery and are planting trees across this corridor, trying to increase the available habitat, particularly for Cerulean warblers, um, but also for other species. Mm-hmm. Um, and we think that the, the populations of Cerulean warblers in that, that pass through that area um, but also, interestingly, of golden wing warblers that kind of winter in that area are linked um, directly to areas through the Midwest and up, mm. up to Wisconsin. So, mm-hmm. you know, in that sense, there's almost direct connection um, between the two. What do you do when you're not, when the migratory birds are not coming through? I'm sure it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seeing kind of mid-May through to mid-August, we generally aren't conducting field work Mm -hmm. but obviously direct conservation actions that all carries that's all year round so that that's always there's always that to be done but also that period is really for me in particular is critical for for data analysis running models producing maps and trying to get the information out to the general public through publications and through popular articles and so on so there's always a lot to do. (laughs) Of course. I really appreciate your time. Thank you for being available. I know it was a a bit of a stretch. So thanks, Nick. You're welcome. 
You have been listening to The Perpetual Notion Machine on WORT 89.9 FM in Madison. I'm Katherine Garvins. My guest tonight was Nick Bailey, Chief Migration Specialist for SELVA, a conservation organization based in Bogota, Colombia. Up next is Radio Literature with Melvin Hinton. Thanks for listening.